0: I read Romans chapter 6 verses 5 through 7 and hear the word of God. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for the rich teaching of your word, especially as we find it now in the book of Romans. And there is, as many men have said, no chapter which... So important to our understanding of the Christian life and perhaps the whole of the book of Romans in this chapter six in the book of Romans. And we ask you, O God, that you would give us now through the preaching a help, not only to our understanding of the teaching, but to our ability now to grasp it. Would you confront us with your word and change us by it now through the preaching? We humbly pray in Jesus name. Amen. As I was driving uh, to church this morning, I asked my children uh, to listen to this sermon with these two questions in mind. And I thought it might be helpful uh, for everyone to, to, to hear these same questions as well. And those are simply these. What is a Christian? And am I a Christian? Those are the two questions to bear in mind in light of the teaching that we have in Romans chapter six, verses five through seven. He is describing what a Christian is. And he is helping us to discern whether we indeed are Christians. And as we're moving through chapter 6, we come now to verse 5. And there we find a a, a kind of summary of what has gone uh, before. He has just said that as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. And therefore... All such have been buried with him through baptism into his death. And if so, then just as he was raised from the tomb, so, too, we should walk in newness of life. That is the argument of verses three and four, which we considered last time. And I more or less uh, gave that argument verbatim. And it's just here that we come to what he says in verse five. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And there you see he's he's stressing uh, simply the same truth. He's restating the argument in essence uh, from verses three and four, which he's apt to do. Uh, and that's not a bad way to make a case. Uh, you restate it and then you press forward uh, to stress new truths. So he's stating it again for emphasis. We've been united with Christ in his death by faith. And if that, if we are truly dead to sin, he says, we shall also share in this resurrection. We will be united with him in that aspect too, not only his death to sin, but the new life of his resurrection. It's for this reason that many take uh, uh, verses three through five as a unit, seeing verse five is the summary of verses three and four and begin Uh, The new paragraph or the new thought in verse 6, though it it doesn't really matter where you put verse 5, either the beginning of a new paragraph or the end of the prior paragraph, what is clear is that uh, the new thought, having summarized the thought of verses 3 and 4 in verse 5, the new thought emerges in verse 6. The thought there is this, and I'm more or less following once more exactly what he says. He again states it as a matter of knowledge. As he's apt to do, knowing this, he says that our old man was crucified with him. That is with Christ on the cross. The old man was crucified with Christ when Christ was crucified. And there we see, uh, again, something similar, but also something new, a new emphasis. The same idea is this. The idea of our shared death with Jesus Christ, which we saw in verse three. Now we see it again in verse six. But what is new, the new emphasis, is the reference to the old man. It was the old man, Paul says, who was crucified together with Christ. He didn't say that in verse 3, but now he takes that thought of our death to sin and he expands it to include the thought of the new man in verse 6. This is something highly important that we'll come back to. It's the key thought of the sermon. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, that's the title. It is the death of the old man. What does that mean? But first, to finish the thought of verses 5 through 7, we see following this, the old man was crucified together with Christ, following that, a double-purpose statement, which follows in verse 6. Two-purpose statements. The first, you have two in order that, in other words. The old man was crucified together with Christ in order that, and in order that. The first is this. the, 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 The old man was crucified with Christ in order that, the body of sin might be done away with. Well, there's another new phrase. The body of sin. What does that mean? We'll come back to that as well. But the second purpose statement again in verse six. The second reason the old man was crucified with Christ is that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And that is the thought which uh, I have. I have stated several times uh, leading up to this. It has been implied thus far as the essence of what our death to sin involves Namely, are being freed from the power of sin, but here it's made explicit. The old man was crucified together with Christ in order that we would be free from sin, no longer slaves. And then in verse 7, Paul sums uh, up the matter in an axiomatic way by stressing the fact that he who has died has been freed from sin. More or less a restatement of what he just said. The end of verse 6, the end of our slavery. Why? Because... We've died to it. And if we've died to it, then obviously that makes us that makes us free. And so what we have here, again, let me stress, is both a restatement of prior arguments along with ideas that are clearly new. He's building the case. He's describing the position of the Christian man. And he's enabling us to evaluate our position if we claim to be Christians in light of this teaching. Does our experience match his description of the Christian man? But I want to ask at this point, before I, I, I press into the new teaching, which we find in verse 6. What does our death to sin mean? What does it, what does it involve? I find myself wondering. Whether I've been adequately clear on this point. Whether we've got it just uh, just right in our minds. Last time we saw what it meant for Christ to die to sin on the cross. He died. Uh, he died to sin itself. The very sin that he bore. The very sin that killed him and laid him in the tomb. Sin itself as a power. As a deadly power. As a condemning power. That's what he died to. And that's what he left in the grave. But do we see what it means to say that we have been united together in the likeness of his death? Verse five. In other words, that we have died to sin. And what does that mean? Well, let me give my definition of what the death, uh, what our death to sin involves. And this uh, is something that we have to bear in mind if we want to go forward. Our death to sin must be seen as a definitive, decisive breach with the power of sin. As a definitive, decisive breach with the power of sin. I want to stress this because it's the key thought of the passage. And nothing that follows will follow unless we have this clearly in our minds. The original assertion you remember being in verse 2. He asked the question, shall we shall we continue in sin? That grace may abound. Far from it, Paul says. For, for how uh, shall we who died to sin still live in it? You see, the fundamental assertion. The leading thought is the believer's death to sin. How did it come about? By his his sharing in the death of Christ. That's how the teaching begins to expand. But the the leading assertion is that we if we are Christians have died to sin. That is the Christian position. That is what it means to be a Christian. And our entire ability to live out the Christian life depends upon our realization of this truth that I who am in Christ, if I am in Christ, am now dead to sin. It's slavery has ended in my life, as he'll later say in verse six and again in verse uh, verse 11. God has put an end to its dominating power in my life so that I as a Christian man no longer have to obey its dictates. The effect of which is that Paul says in verse seven, once more, he who is dead to sin is free, is free from it, that is free from its power. So that he no longer lives in it and he no longer continues in it. Verses one and two. That's what it means to be dead to sin. But what about the idea of new life, which Paul introduced at the end of verse four, when he says that even so, just as Christ was raised, even so we should also walk in newness of life. So you have death to sin on the one hand. But on the other hand, you have the idea of newness of life. Do you have a clear sense of what that means as well? For the Christian life, let me be equally clear, is not just something negative. It is more than mere negation. I'm dead to sin. It's also something positive. And it's especially something positive. It involves new life. Again, we saw what that meant for him. Verses 3 and 4. That is for Christ when he rose from the grave. The beginning of something new. The end of the old. Namely. The relationship with sin that he bore for us in that brief period, in the days that he lived on this earth. He left that behind. He began something new in the resurrection. And that's something that endures, a life that is lived fully to God. But do you know what it means for you? Well, it involves, for one thing, new birth. The renewal of the inner man. The formation, uh, as Jonathan Edwards says in the religious affections, the formation of gracious affections. Which the natural man knows not. But the new man does. A life now lived unto God. No longer in the realm of sin. But in the realm of God. To use the language of uh, the Gospels. It is to be brought out of the kingdom. And the power of darkness. Into the kingdom of God. The kingdom and the power. And the life of God. And have we appreciated this fully? The idea of. New life in Christ. Do we know it for ourselves? Do we know anything uh, as a personal and a practical concern of the the, 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 the newness of life that he speaks of in verse four? Or do we find as we read and hear of these things that Paul is speaking of something strange? You see, this is the way to read scripture and this is the way to listen to sermons. It is always Uh, I once heard it said, and I think this this is an appropriate way, not just apply Scripture to yourself, but apply yourself to Scripture. See, if you fit the description. Well, here's the test. It's what he says in verse six. It's whether we know what Paul knows. It's a matter of personal, practical knowledge, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. The key idea, therefore, the principal thing that the Christian knows, at least within. Uh, the, within the vantage point of verses five to seven. Is that our participation in Christ's death on the cross, verse five involves. Involves the crucifixion of the old man. We know that the old man has been crucified with Christ. Why do we know it? Because we've been united together in the likeness of his death, verse five. And if so, then we know that the old man was crucified. And by implication, we also know something of the new life of the new man, as stated in verses four and five and later in verse 11, but implied in verses five through seven. Well, who is he? Not the new man, but the old man. This is a crucial question. It's a debated question. And I would argue that our ability to live the Christian life and even our ability to know what it means to be a Christian ourselves depends upon our understanding of what Paul means by the old man. And I'm sorry to tell you it is debated, though it shouldn't be, because the idea is so clear. The old man, now you have to take together everything that he's been saying. We haven't gotten past chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, and I doubt we will at least until chapter 9. The contrast between Adam and Christ, the old man, bearing that in mind, the old man was the man in Adam. The man who participated in the sin, the man who was guilty thereby, the man who dies, the natural man who was born into this world according to the flesh, the natural man descended from Adam. One who is born in sin and lives in it. He continues in it. He can't help himself. He's a sinner. One who is thus a slave to sin. And so the old man is the old self. He is the person we once were before we were Christians. Sometimes this is dramatically played out in a man's life. Uh, a man is converted, for instance, and he might change his his name. Uh, the very author of this book did that, or, or letter, rather. He used to be Saul of Tarsus, the man uh, who hated the church. And I doubt anyone ever hated the church as much as Saul did. But what was amazing to see in his life is that God changed him as radically as he ever did anyone. And as a result of that change, well, he was a new person. Uh, and so he, he even took on a new name. No longer the persecutor of Christ and his people, but he who now preaches uh, the very name he used to hate. Saul became Paul. But you needn't go that far. The point is the same whether you keep your name or not. It's just that the effect of our union with Christ, verse four or verse five, rather, especially at the, the moment of our conversion, which is incidentally. The moment of our justification. At that very moment. The old man is gone. The person I once was. I'm not that person anymore. Paul is saying. I if I am a Christian. Have changed. God has changed me. I am a new man. God has changed me completely. He's renewed my affections. Going back to Jonathan Edwards. I now find in me gracious affections that I did not know before, but now they're there. He's given me new life. But the old person is completely gone. He's dead. He's buried in the grave of Christ. And he's left there forever. I needn't bother with him again. He can't bother me anymore. And yet here's where the error creeps in. And it's an error I want you to leave behind this morning. It's that sometimes we falsely speak of the old man as though uh, he were still there, as a kind of nuisance to us. As though the old man were still alive, there to trouble us all the days of our life. But do you realize that is to deny the very teaching of verse 6, that we know if we are Christians, if we are in Christ and have been united together in the likeness of his death, we know, we are certain that the old man has been crucified together with him. He's been killed off. It's not only to deny that. It is to deny the very effect of conversion. What it means for a man to become a Christian. If you are a Christian. Then the old man. The man that you were in Adam. Your former self. Has been crucified with Christ. And buried in the grave. And left there. Never to trouble you again. It is uh, in line with this very thought that. The Apostle Paul will say in Galatians chapter two, verse 20, and you'll notice uh, how he's animated by exactly exactly the same feeling, although he's expressing it here as a personal concern. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I, as a person, as an individual, as a personality, I have died. But now the life that I live, I live by virtue of the life that he lives in me. Do you know this, Paul says? Paul says, if you are a Christian, then you do know it. And thus, as a result of this, I... As a personality, as an individual, I'm not what I once was. And I can never go back to that. It's actually impossible. Of course, I may commit the same sins. But now I'm doing so as a different person. I'm now doing them as one who is in Christ rather than one who is in Adam. And of course, in one sense, that is far worse. But don't think in that moment, even though Satan would have you to think it. That you're simply reverting back to your former self. That the old man is somehow revived or resurrected when he is in fact dead. You see, that's actually impossible. And it's just to confuse the terms and to muddle your thinking to say, well, because I'm going back to the ways of my former self, therefore I am my former self. Paul says in another place, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. The new has come. That is clearly. And all of you who have been saved truly know this for yourselves. A decisive event in a man's life. And there is no way to go back. The old has passed. The new has come. And I can no more go back any anymore than Christ can leave the presence of his father. And go back into the grave or, or go back onto the cross. He never will. Indeed, he cannot. And so neither can you. That's why you have to begin with the teaching of verse five and of verse three that we've been baptized into him. We've been planted into him. And therefore, what is true of him will be true of me. And what is true of him is this. Once he rose up from the grave, that was not only the end of the old, but the beginning of the new. The old is past. The new has come. And don't you see, Paul says if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, again, verse five, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Does it not? Does the thought not obviously follow? And the practical implications of this are enormous as well as obvious. And so I trust that you all, all of you who are truly saved are already aware of the implications of. Of the new life of the new man who is in Christ. And I'm just here to remind you. These are things which you already know. Though at times perhaps you've forgotten them. Well let me remind you. The way is a result of your conversion. You're engrafting into Jesus Christ. Savingly by faith. Your entire life has changed. Your disposition. Your desires. The very person you are. Something new. I'm not the man I once was. You know, people in the world sometimes say that, but only a, tr- a, a Christian can truly say. it. A man who is actually born again. And do you see that to say I am born again does not yield two persons. That is the fallacy of claiming the old man is still there. That is not the effect of the new birth. It does not yield the new man and the old man existing side by side. But it is to say, rather, once I am born a second time, the old person is gone. He's done away with. Where did he go? Well, here is the teaching. Take John 3 together with Romans chapter 6. He died with Christ on the cross. And thus it was necessary, Paul says, along with Jesus, in order for me to have life. A spiritual and eternal life along with Christ. It was necessary for me to be born again. Now by the spirit of God. And so the teaching is this simply. The old man is dead. He is gone never to return. And I as a Christian am something new. I'm a new man. I'm a new person. I'm born again. The old is past. The new has come. But what about Ephesians chapter 4? Because Ephesians chapter 4 is the passage. Now I read it earlier. And I'm going to turn there again. And, and just remind you of what he says there. It's the passage that. It makes people stumble. It makes people speak. Uh, in this muddled way. As though the old man were still there. And we have to. If we want to be sanctified. Continually put him off. In other words. We have to keep killing him. Well it's important to read the entire context. It's true that he says. He says. That you are to put off concerning your former conduct, the old man. And you are to put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. But you have to read the entire context. And the context is a contrast between uh, the old ways and the new ways. And what Paul is doing here is to say, now this is how the unbeliever lives. And this is how you used to live before you became a Christian. Before you learned Christ. And you didn't learn Christ in such a way as to live as you used to live, but you learned Christ so as to live in a new way. But you have not so learned Christ. That is the key statement, verse 20. And he speaks of it as something past. He's speaking of this decisive, definitive breach with the old man himself. He's speaking of our conversions. And the way that we learned him was like this. Uh, let me give you a bit of grammar. Uh, putting off the old man, putting on the new man, are not in the, uh, the, the the form of the imperative, which is a command. They are infinitives. The way you learn Christ was like this, Paul said. It was to put off the old man. And at the same time, you learn Christ in, in, in this other way, and it was to put on the new man. And so the whole of this passage Uh, Verses 20 through 24 is Paul merely reminding them of their conversions. And the reason it is so unthinkable for the Christian to go on living as the Gentiles, the unbelievers, the unredeemed. It's because when you learned Christ, you put off the old man, you put on the new man. And it is out of that that the actual uh, imperatives begin in verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying, let us. Uh, Let each one of you speak the truth of his neighbor. And on he goes to the very end of the epistle. But we especially see the, the, the new life of the new man being played out in verses 25 to the end of the chapter. That, I think, is the best way to understand it. But there is a second interpretation that is possible, which still does not change the overall point I'm making. And it does see these infinitives. As imperatives it views them as commands. But even still, there is no violence done to the point. uh, Which I've been stressing in verse in chapter six of Romans, namely that the old man is dead. And that the business of the Christian life is not simply to put him to death over and over again. The second interpretation looks something like this. That Paul, when he says to put off the old and to put on the new, is in fact telling them to do this as a continual work. I I don't think this is the strongest argument, but many have made it. But even then, even if that's what he's telling them to do, it's clear that in those verses, verse 24 and verse 22, he's reminding them of what they learned in their conversions. And he's simply telling them to keep on living in light of what they learned. Live a life in the same way that you learned to live in your conversions. Certainly, the addition of the word conduct or manner helps us to see this. He says that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, and that you put on uh, the new man. Uh, There isn't actually the word conduct there. But you have the word conduct in verse 22, at least the conduct of the old man. You put him off. And thus, according to the second interpretation, Paul is admonishing that in accordance with what we learn from Christ at first, we put off the conduct of the old man. In other words, we don't go back to it. And insofar as we're tempted to do so, he says positively that we keep uh, we not only keep putting it off, but in its place, we keep putting on the new life of the new man. Well, as I say, that is a weaker interpretation, but it is a common one. But at least we see. Uh, that uh, the point remains, and that is that the old man is dead. And let us never try to interpret uh, any passage in any other light. But returning to the main thought, I would notice this. And that is that this is not the end of my ongoing conflict with sin. And even Paul seems to concede as much when he speaks of the body of sin. Remember the first purpose statement. What I know about myself, if I am a Christian, is that The old man was crucified together with Christ. And why? Well, the first answer to that question is in order that the body of sin might be done away with. And so he speaks of the death of the old man on the one hand as something definitive and decisive and final, but the ongoing need on the other hand to do away with the body of sin. And one, he says, is the cause of the other. The death of the old man is what makes the doing away with the body of sin possible. But how should we understand the body of sin? Well, it's clear that Paul is making an important distinction here. The body of sin and the old man are not the same. And if you confuse them, well, again, you'll have muddled thinking not only about Scripture, but about yourselves and about the Christian life. This is a common and it is a crucial distinction. In the greater Pauline theology that you find in all of his epistles, he is is distinguishing this. The new life of the inner man with the sinful tendencies of the outer man. I'll say that again. The new life of the inner man with the sinful tendencies of the outer man. Sometimes called the flesh, our bodies. These bodies of sin. Or as he says in another place, these bodies of death. The idea here comes out many times uh, in the later portions of Romans. Romans chapter 7, verses 22 through 23. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members, the inner man and the outer man called the members Again, Romans chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Yes, he says, you might be dead in the outer man. And more and more as we as we work through Romans chapter six, seven, and eight, we will see this is the emphasis. Sin is alive in my members, in my body, and it is working out the principle of death. And one day my body will die. My flesh is still yet unredeemed, but inwardly I am renewed. I am a new man. And what Paul is saying here is that just as surely as Christ is in you, the Spirit, who is at work in you, who raised Jesus from the days will, uh, from the dead, will also raise your body. From the dead on the last day. The body is still yet unredeemed. But that is not the final word. In verse 23 of chapter 8. He says the same thing. He says. Not only that. But we also have the first fruits of the spirit. Even we ourselves. Grown within ourselves. Eagerly waiting for the adoption. The redemption. Of our body. And so I as a person. And am renewed inwardly, but outwardly I am unrenewed, unredeemed. But as I say, that is not the final word. That is not the final teaching. The spirit who is in you will redeem your body at last in the end. And so the conflict endures our conflict with sin, not because the old man has come alive again and he's still troubling me. That is not the teaching. The teaching is that the old man is gone and that I'm a new man. But that that is an inward principle and that is an inward life. But that the flesh. The flesh is still sinful, the body, and that is why it's going to die. And that is why I continue to struggle and to strive and to toil for my own sanctification. And until my body is put off in the grave and until it is renewed in the resurrection, the conflict will endure Thus, we find Paul's teaching in chapter 6, verses 11 and 12 to look like this. He says, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ our Lord. That is yourself, your person, the inner man. But in light of this teaching, do not, he says, verse 12, and you see how the thought follows. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lusts. Who is the person he's exhorting? He's exhorting the new man who carries about him sin in his flesh. And do not let sin reign in the body, even though it's there. And it will be until you put off the body in death. It's the same conflict that Paul speaks of later in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. He says, I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. The presence, he says, of two contrary principles, the spirit and the flesh, the new man who is animated by the spirit of God and the body of sin and death. And who will win? That's the great question of the Christian life. And I would ask you, is any question more important than that to your own sanctification and your own growth in grace, as well as your own estimation of yourselves as to whether, in fact, you are Christians? And I would suggest that even among those who are saved, it is too often the case uh, that we live as though it is sin that will win, as though it is sin and the flesh and the body of sin that is the greater power and principle in a man's life even after his conversion but i tell you it is not so i tell you on the authority of god's word and i would add my own testimony to that i know it is so consider again the teaching you as a person as an individual if you are a christian were made new the old is past the new is come why in order that the body of sin might be done away with do you realize that's the point that's the purpose That's the effect of the new man. It is the doing away of the body of sin in the sense that it's defeated. Once again, the teaching of Romans chapter six, verses uh, verses 11 and 12, he says, reckon yourselves or realize this about yourselves. That you're dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then in light of that teaching. Won't you go on? Won't you go on with your sanctification? Won't you live out this life? Stop living like slaves to sin. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, to obey its lusts. The slavery is ended, the new life has come. And the victory uh, the victory is well, it's already begun. And victory in the truest sense is nigh. You see, this is not what he is describing a losing battle. He's not saying what you sometimes say to me. Well, I just, I struggle to stop and I can't stop. That is not how Paul describes the Christian. That is not how he describes his relationship with sin. Yes, sin lives in the body and even in some sense, it reigns in the body. But it doesn't reign in me as a person. And until you realize that, you will constantly go about your life obeying the lusts of the flesh. As though you were still its slave. As though you were still unredeemed and unrenewed. Yes, it is possible, Paul says, to forget what we know, to go on living the Christian life as though the old man were still alive and as though he were the greater power. But even then, it's only temporary. And here, I think uh, it was never put so well as it it was stated in our confession of faith in the chapter on sanctification, speaking uh, of the, the believer's Ongoing conflict with sin. Now, if you read sections one and two, you'll find the language of the old man, the new man, the death of Jesus Christ, our union with him and so forth. But it, it, it speaks of this conflict and this war as a winning one. In which war it says, section three, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yes, there may be seasons of backsliding, yet Though the uh, through the continual supply of the uh, of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome. That is the new man is winning. And so it says the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And so the effect I need, I need to hurry on, uh, although I don't feel I've lost you just yet. The effect of the new man and the new creation, he says, is the second purpose statement. Is that we should no longer be slaves to sin. That's the end of verse 6. For he concludes verse 7. He who has died is free. As a kind of axiom once more. Something that's always true. As soon as you die. You're free from the former relationships. Paul later gives the illustration of, of someone who's married. Well you're only married so long as the person is alive. And once that person is dead. You are freed from that from that relationship. Well we should view our relationship to sin in that way. As soon as death has occurred, the slavery has ended. A man can be a slave to sin only so long as he lives. But once he has died, that is the end. For sin, he says, reigns unto death. Chapter 5, verse 21. But death is the end. Sin can't claim a man beyond that. And surely you appreciate the relevance of this to the Christian life. It's as Jesus says in John chapter 8, that he who sins is a slave to sin, but but those uh, who the son sets free will be free indeed freed from what from the slavery of sin. That's how you're meant to live your life. That's what the life of faith looks like. That's what a Christian is. And it's true of every person who is a Christian that he is in Christ. He's united to Christ. If we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with and so forth. The question is, do we know it? And how can we know it? Going back to the original two questions, what is a Christian and are you a Christian? And how can we know? How can we know that we are in Christ, that by grace we have been saved, that the old man is gone? To me, there is no more crucial test than this. And it is the test of when we are tempted. We just sung about it in the second hymn. In the hour of trial, in the hour of darkness, when the body of sin begins to assert itself again, claiming a part of us, of ourselves, and demanding that we obey its lusts, the lust of the flesh. And will you obey in that moment? Consider two types of people. There are those whose interest in Christianity is more or less theoretical and it's possible to read chapters one through five of Romans in this way. They enjoy hearing sermons about Jesus Christ. They enjoy going to church. They love to hear about the doctrines of grace and justification by faith. But in the hour of trial and of temptation, what they find is that they're living as they always did before. They're continuing in sin. They're still living in sin. The teaching that they claim to love has not changed them. And that is because there is no vital union between them and Jesus Christ. And so they just go on sinning. You see, chapter six is the chapter that finds you out. What you really thought of chapters one through five. All the teaching of Christ and of grace and of justification. Has it changed you? Well, there's another type of person. Those who have, by his grace, been engrafted savingly into Jesus Christ. and And who have thus experienced A lasting change. A lasting change. People made new. Am I describing you? Well, this gracious gracious change becomes most apparent when the second type of person is tempted to sin in the hour of trial and of temptation. When the body of sin once more begins to assert itself and it begins or tries at least to make its claim upon his person. To obey its lusts. Oh, but just then the thought comes rushing in. And tell me if you know anything of this. I cannot commit this sin. For I'm not what I once was. I am now a new person. I'm now a Christian. The old man has died. And I concede he would have listened. He would have obeyed. He would have sinned. But now he has died. And I am set free from him. And so now when I am tempted to sin... I don't have to listen. I don't have to let it rain in my body, and I will not. Don't you see that is the effect of the new man? And don't you see that that is where the reality of grace in a man's life becomes apparent? It's in his ongoing conflict with sin, it's when he's tempted, and the reality of grace is seen and appears. In this new man's ability actually to resist temptation. To say no to the body. Though it would demand obedience. To watch in in our resistance the devil flee a defeated foe. Do you know anything of this? I doubt Christianity is worth very much to any man. Unless it can enable him to do that. To resist temptation. Uh, Temptations are sure to come, Jesus says. But what is equally sure is that you are able to resist them. And you are meant to if you are a Christian. Knowing this, Paul says, I say once more that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Oh, and do you know it? Amen. And let us come to the table. I need, I need the larger print to preach, but I cannot find the passage I'm looking for, so I'm going to use the smaller print just to make this easier. I know it's in Mark chapter 14. That's a great preaching Bible, but it doesn't have any of the little titles, and I, I confess even now I depend upon them in a pinch. There we are. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, verse 22. How helpful. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, what can I say here that I haven't said before? I'll just say it again. Uh, Jesus Christ is connecting his grace with his person. And in particular, our experience of grace with his person as one who was crucified. And by implication, one who was also raised. Do you want to know the, the grace of Jesus Christ? The death to sin, the new life. And then the growth of the new man. And the victory of the new man. Well, then you need to receive grace from Jesus Christ. You need that grace in the hour of trial. You need that grace even now in the hour of worship. And that is the very grace that he offers to you at the Lord's Supper. It's the grace that he offers in all of his ordinances, but this uh, no less than the rest. And he offers that grace is connected and is uh, symbolized through the bread and the wine, uh, symbolizing his death, especially on the cross. His death as the basis of our own grace to help in time of need. It is called a means of grace. This is not just our memory, our memorial of Jesus Christ. This is our coming to him afresh and and saying, oh, Jesus, help me. For I have indeed been made new, but still I find I am engaged in this bitter conflict. And I need you to strengthen me. Strengthen me in the inner man. You've made me new. You've washed me. You've You've cleansed me. But I need you still to wash my feet. I'll have something to say about that this evening. And to such as, uh, as have this hope, the table is for you. It is meant for you. Uh, but to those who are Judas's among us, well, as Judas was found at that table, the apostate, the unrepentant, the unbelieving. Uh, the legalist, the self-righteous, he who does not live by grace and by faith in the son of God. Well, he who has no part in Christ has no part in his table. And so I offer you at the same time words of invitation as well as words of warning and of fencing. But according to scripture, I leave it to you to make that judgment. This is a matter of your own conscience. I exhort, but you have to make the call. And thus we fence behind the table uh, in, in our church and in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Uh, you're, the, you're the one who has to examine yourself whether you are able to discern in this Simple demonstration, the cup and the bread, a display and an offer of grace to needy souls. Uh, I, with those words, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of the Lord's Supper. We thank you for the gift, most of all, of what it represents sacramentally, and that is Jesus Christ crucified for us. And we along with him, if we are in him and we ask you, O oh God, that you would enable us to receive from him now. As you offer, Lord Jesus, as you offer yourself to us, may we receive from you grace to help us, help us to worship, help us to resist temptation, help us to stand and to live as new men and as new creations. And We ask this in your name. Amen.